finally get to cast a spell in Haltmead. I never knew what 120 miles per hour felt like until Fast and Furious supercharged. I never thought coming face to face with a hungry T-Rex would make my dad scream so loud. And I have never felt more scared or alive. If you haven't been to Universal Studios Hollywood lately, come see what you've been missing. Plan your visit online and save at UniversalStudiosHollywood.com. Restrictions apply. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk radio show. My guest for this morning is Dr. Barrett Brogard. She is a professor of philosophy with joint appointments in the Departments of Philosophy and Psychology at the University of Miami, as well as the Network for Sensory Research at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogart has written over 75 peer-reviewed articles and some 300 popular articles on neuroscience and health issues. She is the co-author of The Superhuman Mind and the author of The Transcend Truth. Her work has been featured on Nightline, ABC News, The Huffington Post, Fox News, MSNBC, Daily Mail, Modesto B, and Mumbai Mirror. Dr. Brogard is also the editor of the international peer-reviewed philosophy journal, Arcanus, and the first female president of the Central State Philosophical Association. Dr. Brogard and I will be having a conversation about her life's journey and her latest book on romantic love, Simple Truths About a Complex Emotion. Good morning, Dr. Brogard. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Very well, thank you. Um, and th- thanks so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. On Romantic Love is a very interesting read. It encapsulates the causation and the reaction of how, why, and when of love. By the way, terrific illustration in the book as well. So congratulations on its release. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, I didn't do the illustrations, but um, a friend of mine did. So yeah, I'm very happy about those. Wonderful. Let us start by getting to know you a little better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Yeah, so I was born in uh, Copenhagen, as you might have guessed, um, if, if you can hear my accent, uh, in, in Scandinavia. And I grew up in, in, in Copenhagen uh, and, and studied um, um, neuroscience there. Uh, then I took the journey across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to the to the States, and I uh, ended up studying uh, cognitive linguistics, uh, which I turned into uh, philosophy. And uh, then, um, at some point, I went to Australia for three years to um, to study consciousness uh, with one of the leading experts on consciousness, David Chalmers. Uh, and after my postdoc there. I returned to the U.S. Uh, and now I'm in in Miami. Uh, so, so that that's uh, sort of the, the short version of my life journey. <laughs> I understand. Who were your influences when you were a teenager? When I was a teenager, um, I had uh, I had many influences. I had uh, influences um, in in philosophy. A fantastic uh, philosopher. Uh, uh, female philosopher, or two in fact, but the one that is most uh, relevant to this book is uh, Martha Nussbaum, 
she's uh, in in um, she's actually uh, in the law department, um, even though she's a philosopher at the University of Chicago. Uh, and so I've never met her. Um, I have met uh, another philosopher in her family, um, who, whose last name is Newsbound, but I have not met her. And, and so she was an inspiration, even though I didn't know that I wanted to do philosophy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very interested in what she wrote on on um, sort of political issues and, 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 and a little bit later on emotions. Uh, and I was also uh, very inspired by some of the uh, psychologists who had studied uh, emotions and particularly attachment theory. So, so um, uh, Balbi was a big uh, inspiration. And uh, but at, at that point, I thought um, maybe I wanted to to look at some of that attachment theory in the brain. So I ended up going into neuroscience. What led you to be so interested in the study of philosophy, psychology, and in this case, at a very young age, extremely fascinated with science and mathematics. Yeah, so I um, I didn't have much exposure to philosophy. In fact, I had much more exposure to to science um, and mathematics and physics. Uh, so, especially uh, during my education in Denmark and how that was organized at the time. Uh, you could sort of choose two different tracks, and neither of them would actually include uh, psychology or philosophy, but one would be more language-oriented, and the other would be more mathematics and physics and science-oriented. So mm-hmm. I chose the science track, and I was very sort of keen on, on uh, science. Um, I, I, um, I didn't know that I actually already had read a little bit of philosophy because uh, back in in our Danish classes, which would be the equivalent mm. of the English classes, yeah, we we read some um, some Kierkegaard, so the Danish philosopher, but but I didn't I didn't think of him as a philosopher at the time. So that was sort of my entrance into to the sciences, I guess. I understand in a way that I believe the educational system, where I think up to about ninth grade, I suddenly was exposed to the British system, and I say this respectfully because I understand the concept of. Well, we learn everything, and then finally, somewhere along the line, around ninth grade or so, we were streamlined into, if you're good, then you just focus on sciences, and then if you are yeah. good yeah. in a certain way, you focus on the arts, and that's where, obviously, philosophy, yeah. psychology, and so forth, it's more to the art side of the equation when you go to high school, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, if you're lucky, in uh, when I grew up, you would have psychology, be exposed directly to the psychology, or... or um, uh, and or philosophy, uh, but although, mm-hmm. although if, if 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 not, then it would be uh, sort of different kinds of languages, and then mm-hmm. since it was in Denmark, it would be Danish, but uh, Danish literature, Danish grammar. Yeah, the outside like, of Latin. the equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, but but then that, that I picked the other side because I was sort of schooled in that direction, and 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 I would have uh, lots of mathematics, mm-hmm. lots of science classes, lots of. Uh, um, uh, yeah, the physics, physics too, and um, right, right. Uh, even even the sort of uh, theoretical physics. So right. So I didn't have direct exposure to neuroscience, but I did have exposure to to uh, biochemistry and areas in biology that dealt with the the brain. So so uh, so that was sort of uh, a track at the university that I could I could choose. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would deal with uh, um, 
the brain, but also biochemistry and biology and so forth. What so, led you yeah. to this field of interest? There's a nice marriage of the fine arts, philosophy, psychology, and then with the science side of the equation when you're talking about microbiology and neurosciences and so forth. That's a wonderful blend in a way, and you have exposed yourself to that all throughout college, and eventually you pursued a doctorate degree in philosophy. So walk us through your mind when you were sort of having that interest on both sides of the field, so to speak. So I I, um, I did a lot of uh, in vitro um, work. That means you basically yeah, you 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 put put some some liquids into uh, a test tube, and then you put some other liquids into a test tube, and then you see whether the the two bind together. Uh, so I worked on the chemicals, uh, brain chemicals, the neurotransmitters, and um, that was to me very theoretically interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't find it. Um, I didn't find it as interesting as the bigger questions. So I was thinking about uh, doing something else. So in before I ended up in philosophy, I actually uh, thought about cognitive linguistics. Mm-hmm. So I went to to the U.S. to study uh, cognitive linguistics, and that that's when I then sort of slowly um, converted. Uh, I was in uh, a place where philosophy and psychology were uh, in in the exact same, uh, not the same department, but they were in the same floor of the building. So I I had the opportunity to um, be acquainted with philosophers and and some of their classes. So I switched to philosophy actually at at the stage of the dissertation. I wrote my dissertation on philosophy. And uh, and then so to make full circle, I ended up um, doing this postdoc in Australia at the Center for Consciousness, which was more focused, uh, of course, on on, um, on consciousness and the brain and perception and issues like that. So I sort of then using uh, both my philosophy. So those would be the big sort of big questions. And I also then started a, um, a lab, a neuroscience lab, uh, that that is that is still operational, even though it's moved since it first started. It's moved locations, so to speak. Were your parents heavily involved in the academic field? Um, they were. Um, my mom was in in uh, was more of an uh, artist. She was a designer, clothes designer, and my my dad was. Um, Actually, in, in uh, police force, but, but uh, working as a security guard. So mm-hmm. I would say no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> much more, uh, uh, more on the art side, and uh, both of them had uh, traveled the world before mm-hmm. they uh, got together. So they were very mm-hmm. um, interested in sort of exploring the world. My dad had been to Egypt and. My mom mm-hmm. went to Israel and Germany and France and, and not just that that, that but she lived there for for so many years. So um, I did my dad in, in Egypt. So so uh, so they were they were sort of um, I guess we had that in common because I ended up moving away from Denmark too. But but uh, but they were not in academia. Uh, academia. No. Very interesting. What attracts you about philosophy? Philosophy in particular, I think, is is really interesting because you can ask uh, these big questions uh, that 
even go a little bit beyond but uh, beyond what we can look at in the empirical sciences um, at the time. And it's always been that way. So that was um, back at the, at the time of Aristotle, uh, we couldn't we couldn't do much empirical work, for instance, in in, in areas like um, physics or chemistry or biology. So, so those things would be part of of philosophy. So Aristotle wrote um, he wrote about um, physics. He wrote about biology. He wrote about basically all of the sciences. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and and of course nowadays that we have those disciplines uh, on their own. Um, that's not what most people do, though. There are still people who do philosophy of biology or philosophy of physics and um, mm-hmm. and so on. But we can also sort of explore things such as, uh, say, the, the meaning of life or, or certain aspects of the emotions or certain aspects of experience uh, or what it's like to be conscious, um, how the mind of an animal differs from the mind of... Um, um, a, a human and and so on. So, so the question sort of that that maybe draw on the sciences, but can also go a little bit beyond that. We can also explore mm-hmm. questions about what will happen when when virtual reality, for instance, becomes even more developed and more sophisticated, and um, what will happen in that case. Certainly, we can't we can't fully explore that empirically because uh, we're talking about the future and certain technologies that have not been developed yet. But that's often some of the topics that philosophy is concerned with. And then, of course, there's, there are all the normative areas. By normative areas, I mean all the things that are about what you ought to do. Mm-hmm. So I also go into that in, uh, in, in my work on love. So it's not just what do you, what is it you ought to do ethically or morally speaking or mm-hmm. legally speaking, but there's also, for instance, questions in with respect to the emotions, where you can talk about what you ought to do or what you ought not do. So, so those are the normative questions that are um, difficult to explore fully in the empirical sciences. How about the other side of the equation, psychology? In psychology. Um, so originally, uh, psychology was uh, until very late a part of uh, philosophy. In fact, uh, we we say sort of roughly around 1900 was mm-hmm. when the two areas separated out, and and um, because there were people who were more on the empirical side and wanted to do more of uh, what would have been experimental philosophy back at the time, and then there were people who, would, who wanted to rely more on. Uh, logic and mathematics, and they separated out, and the logic and mathematics people became the back then the philosophers, mm-hmm. and the other uh, the other field became um, psychology. So, mm-hmm. so that was sort of the experimental um, side, or these potentially aiming to be experimental uh, and doing experiments, if not if they weren't already doing it, uh, and was the other wanted to explore more of, uh, things that that had to do with closer to, to something like mathematics, but it was specifically logic uh, and, and also the uh, sort of concept, concept with the, sort of mm-hmm. the nature of concepts and so on. Um, but over the years, I mean, so that's uh, more than 100 years ago. So over the years, the two fields, uh, in some sense, are both uh, further from each other than they were before, but also closer together. They're further from each other because psychology itself has spread out and have become, um, I mean, so you can do industrial psychology today, or you can 
You can search right. how children develop, or you can uh, go into to, uh, becoming a, a therapist and so on. But on the other hand, if you look at the parts of psychology that we call cognitive psychology, mm-hmm. uh, and also some parts of personality psychology, um, that they are um, to to a large extent sort of closer to philosophy uh, once again, like they used to be. Uh, even though the psychologists tend to do more of the experiments and the philosophers tend to do more of the grand theories and, and sort of thinking about those at the abstract of things. Very, very interesting. So how does all this fall into what you were working on, the idea on romantic love? Yeah, so I, I was interested in, in the emotions and perception and um I talk about in 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 the book um, about how how um, emotions are special kinds of perceptions. That's a view I um, I advocate in the book. But uh, I that was sort of the route into it. But I was thinking about things having to do with the mind and the brain, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly is perception and emotion. And then it just occurred to me that. Many many um, philosophers and some psychologists do not take love to, to be an emotion, or do not treat it as an emotion, but treated it as something else, more like maybe a phenomenon or something involving a couple, or mm-hmm. um, or, or something that would be a union of two people. And but what more people in psychology have um, taken it sort of almost for granted that love would be an emotion. And so, and I, I definitely thought, well, I did, I, even if that is such a thing as a love as a relationship or love as a union or love as a, I'm hoping there will be a relationship, um, there's also, I think, love as, as an emotion, kind of love that I wanted to explore and defend in the book. So so it sort of grew out of my work on emotions and, and then I um, I thought more specifically about romantic love uh, it would have been much too much to have uh, to be thinking about parental love and friendship love and all that all at the same time. Wonderful. Please give us a quick synopsis of the book. Yeah. So in so in the book, I um, I try to tackle love uh, just not uh, not just from from the philosophical um, side, but also I, I look a little bit at um, I look, well, look also at the psychology, but I also look a little bit at the, at the neuroscience, particularly um, what I specialize in when I did in neuroscience of so the, the chemicals uh, that are involved uh, both in controlling how we feel in our bodies and how we feel in, in uh, or how things work in the brain. And so some of the same uh, chemicals double both in the body and the brain. So an example would be uh, adrenaline, right? So mm-hmm. we know that mostly most people know that from the body as a hormone. Um, it also function as, functions as the um, as a neurotransmitter in the brain. So I look a little bit at, at love from that angle. Uh, then I go into uh, the idea of what is love because the, uh, the the chemical processes can sort of explain love. But it's what love is, because it's not love, it's emotion, and emotion is not what we feel. So I go in and I defend the view that um, that love is an emotion. That should be it should be possible to um, 
for romantic love to include the stage of being in love. And certainly if you are in love, you don't need the other person to be in love, right? So that's a, that's a, that's a, but I mean, that's a problem sometimes with romantic love. But if you, mm-hmm. in fact, in fact, in some cases, you don't even need there to be another person, right? I mean, it may be that you just believe them with another person or you hallucinate so that the many great movies of, uh, about that, of course, but, um, but so, so I want love to, so I was trying to concentrate more on love as emotion, love as this thing that might involve another person, but it may not be involve another person who uh, reciprocates. Uh, so it, it may not be returned, right? Your love may mm-hmm. not uh, come back to you. So, so that's the kind of love I wanted to look at. And then I, I moved from that into the idea of, of whether love and can be rational and or and irrational. So mm-hmm. so we do say things like that uh, sometimes with respect to love, but we especially with respect to other emotions. So we very often say things like, um, oh, are you really you're afraid of flying that that but that's irrational because uh, you have a, a much um, greater chance of getting killed on the highway in a car than in a in an airplane. So it's irrational. So, but I'm exploring a little more what that means with respect to emotions, and in particular with respect to to love. What does it mean to say that love is irrational? When is it irrational mm-hmm. exactly? Mm-hmm. Um, and, Very interesting. And then I go into other yeah aspects of the view such as that love is not a just black or white matter. It comes in degrees, uh, and and we don't express ourselves what that way. So. You wouldn't say to someone you are romantically interested in or, or that you love romantically, yeah, you know, I love you maybe uh, to 30% degree or uh, 0.3 degree or something. Um, that you, We don't say that. Or if somebody asks mm-hmm. you, um, do you love me? And say, well, maybe a little bit today, a little bit more <laughs> yesterday perhaps. Uh, so, so we don't talk that way. And, but... but um, so, it's, so it's, it's easy to lay out the argument, but it sort of clashes with how we think of love and how we talk about love. And then uh, I also talk about when love is not really felt. So even though I start out by see, saying that love is felt because it's an emotion, I also uh, go into the aspect of emotions that we talk less about, namely when they're not felt. And we know that they're not because if you you can if 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 you are if you hold a grudge or you're angry at someone for a long time. You don't feel it every single second of the day. It, it sort of comes and goes, but it, 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 but it went away just because um, you didn't feel it. So I go into that, and that's sort of the uh, the unconscious, what I call the unconscious aspect mm-hmm. of of uh, love. So so that's um, that's sort of most of the book. I also mm-hmm. talk about the difference between. The romantic love at the beginning stages and attachment love at mm-hmm. the later stages. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest is Dr. Barrett Brogan. She's a professor of philosophy with joint appointments in the departments of philosophy and psychology at the University of Miami, as well as the Network for Sensory Research at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogart and I are having a conversation about her life's journey and her latest book on romantic love, 
simple truths about the complex emotions. Dr. Bogart, you talked about the concept of our body made up of chemistry. So what is the chemistry of love? So it um, it varies. Uh, so it depends on how far um, you want to go with the notion of love. But for for romantic love, uh, which of course the book is about, we have the beginning stages, uh, the very beginning stages, uh, and then we have some transitioning stages, and then some later stages. Um, this is in, in in the classical case, right? So you fall in love. Um, you may also enter cases where you would should claim that you love the person because you say as much to them, and but you're still in those phases where um, you are. Uh, I sort of compare it with hunger. So you, you, it's, it's in um, uh, the, the neurotransmitters is more similar to if you were hungry um, and a little bit edgy, a little bit on the edge, a little bit nervous. Um, but then of course. Uh, love, love might be the uh, the pleasantness and the excitement as well. Uh, if it's uh, if it's case, if it's a case of of you being uh, just having been broken up with or something, um, you wouldn't have that. You might just have the still the the urge or the need or the um, the hunger. Um, and and the, so the chemicals there uh, they also look a, a lot more uh, like the chemicals in certain kinds of anxiety disorders, so obsessive-compulsive disorder, for example, which would have uh, low serotonin, which is the sort of, uh, in some sense, feeling saturated kind of um, neurotransmitter. Uh, you might have very fluctuating levels of dopamine, which is the the one that motivates us and also makes us addicted and so on. Uh, in later stages of love, uh, when it moves more into to an, a kind of attachment, mm-hmm. um, we see something different. We see uh, in the good cases. So if if it's a good case uh, of a good relationship, say you're in a good relationship, uh, you feel secure and attached. Uh, you see more, much more balanced levels of serotonin. Uh, so th- th- that's why I like to call it uh, the satiation um, chemical, as opposed to some people like to call it the feel-good chemical. But mm-hmm. but it's really sort of dopamine, the one that that drives us and can make us addicted to things that that makes us feel things that's as really super pleasant, as opposed to merely sort of okay, I feel good in the I feel really comfortable, uh, good, right? So serotonin is more mm-hmm. like that. It's more like I feel really comfortable. Whereas dopamine, when you have a lot of uh, a big dopamine rush through your, that's when you feel sort of maybe you are you could be on a maybe on a roller coaster in, in some <laughs> um, big um, you know so, so the Six Flags or something right it's one of the, the big scary roller coasters or you might be um, you might be falling in love or it might be in a new relationship and it is exciting uh, so that's sort of the um, the motivator chemical dopamine and the, but also the, maybe the excitement chemical, the addiction chemical dopamine was uh, serotonin is not the feel good in the sense. Um, oh, oh my God. I, I, I just can't stop eating this chocolate cake kind of good. It's more <laughs> like I'm, I'm full and I'm happy. I'm satisfied and I don't need things to change kind of, I don't need, I don't need more chocolate cake. I can, I, I'm, I'm happy um, and satisfied. Uh, so, 
so those are so those the balances between those two are um uh, that's sort of what I focus on of course there are numerous uh brain chemicals involved in all emotions, but the ones that fluctuate uh, are those in particular so they they can really fluctuate of course there's more to be done in terms of studying these chemicals but but uh that that's as as far as we we know those are the two that can fluctuate most in in romantic love very interesting. So if we were to feel a certain way, basically our thoughts, and then that thoughts change into beliefs, that beliefs can ultimately alter our brain chemistry? Yeah, so there's definitely a um, the way we think about things. Um, I get into that at the beginning of the book, but I uh, return to it at the end of the book. Uh, and certainly if you can change your beliefs, and that's not uh, as easy done as it's it's definitely uh, hard to change your beliefs about someone. I mean, try to make mm-hmm. yourself believe that you don't like chocolate cake if you do, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. not going to work very well. Um, but if your beliefs change, that can affect your brain chemistry. And and that's, um, yeah, and that's usually how it goes. So, of course, your brain chemistry can change for other reasons, right? You can have internal um, disorders, uh, brain disorders, for example, or you can hurt your brain and your brain chemistry can change. But in, in cases where it's not because of disease or injury uh, or illness, uh, it, it, typically, it typically has to do with uh, our perception which, of the world or our beliefs about the world, and that, and that will control our brain, brain chemistry, yes. Right. We have a certain belief about ourselves, about love, right? We have this concept, and I say this respectfully because I'm sure the guys have their own beliefs, and then the women, like when we were growing up, it was like that Cinderella story or the Prince Charming. We have certain beliefs. And so are we contracting with the people, and we're trying to make them fit into that equation? That's right. Um, That's right. That's um, something I'll, I mentioned briefly at the beginning of the, the book, and then get, get back into later too. Mm-hmm. That we 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 yeah uh, yeah we're very inspired by by what we see um, around us, and, and and that's from when we're little, and maybe the girls play with Barbie dolls that look a certain way. Maybe the boys see the girls play with those Barbie dolls that look a certain way, um, or or. Um, or later, we we all see it constantly in, in, in the movies, uh, romantic comedies, uh, Hollywood right. movies around us in the magazines, uh, and and we form certain beliefs, and and they're bound to be different, even when parents uh, try to not make a difference between how they raise their little girls and their little boys. Uh, the little girls and little boys go to school. And they, they mix with people, uh, I mean, other little boys and other little girls, who were not raised that way. So we, we don't know what would happen if everyone was raised that way. But but certainly, but, uh, how parents raise their little boys and little girls uh, does not really ultimately. I mean, there's been, been studies on that. It does not alter that difference in beliefs between men and women because mm-hmm. may, maybe because we we eventually enter society, right? And and there we we uh, sort of counteract it even if some mm-hmm. parents uh, might try to not make too much of a difference between little boys and little girls. Uh, so, yeah, we have those beliefs, and so that will also 
shape how we yeah what we expect from relationships so it's not it's not as uh, it's not that men have one way of entering relationships and women have another way, but but there can be a little bit of an influence. I talk about avoidance, attachment uh, disorder, and and then uh, what we could call more colloquially speaking, we could call it mm-hmm. sort of a clingy um, uh, attachment disorder uh, mm-hmm. and or attachment style. I actually talk, I talk about the full-blown disorder. I talk about the style. So attachment style, which is, um, it's also called the anxious attachment style, and but you can think of it as more of the clinging, the one needing mm-hmm. more time with the other, and so on. And and there is uh, even though uh, that, that certainly are many men that have the, the the dependent anxious clingy attachment style, and many women that have the avoidant one. There's a slight tendency um, from the way we grow up, for and from left leftover. Um, in traditional gender roles that are left over still in society and so on, for um, for for I mean, the whole society but to be oriented around mm-hmm. women being the ones that should be protected and the ones that should be seeking uh, or caring and 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 and, and maybe wanting um, and the man should be less uh, emotional and. Of course, traditionally would be the breadwinner and should be the strong person and so on. So there's a little bit of a tendency to that to mm-hmm. translate into that men, maybe not on the inside, but at least in the way they act in relationships, uh, will might be more of the avoidance um, kind of um, have that kind of avoidance assessment style. Um, it may not be how they actually feel, but if they were taught not to show their emotions or not to depend on other people for comfort and so on, uh, they will. They might come across as more avoidant, and women might come across as more clingy, dependent, uh, mm-hmm. and anxious. But this is only sort of slight tendency for men to be one way and women to be another way, and that, that definitely is cultural. Interesting. I would think that's something sort of related to generations as well, because the newer generations are a little bit more interdependent. They are much more homogeneous from that standpoint of view versus, say, the older generation. They have much more distinct role a man and a woman plays in that sort of a union, so to speak. I think I think that's right. Uh, so, so I have a daughter, um, and she's... Um, She's uh, not even the so she divided into um, uh, so X generation X right before that it was uh, so, uh, the uh, baby boomer generation mm-hmm. and then the, the this generation Y which also has a number of other names and then generation uh, set or C as so here in the US mm-hmm. uh, and she belongs to that one so she's she's a teenager now. Mm-hmm. Um, the one in between uh, her and myself, so my my uh, sort of younger students, um, <laughs> they are they're definitely you can see their, that their approaches definitely yeah they are probably uh, more yeah so they they there's probably less of a difference in their cases right though right. though you will still see it there I mean so we mm-hmm. I had uh, we had um, a coach taught a class on and it wasn't specifically about on love, but one of the sections was on emotions. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember that um, that one of the so the discussion for some reason went into whether um, that was what what the students thought about if the man was shorter than the woman. And mm-hmm. uh, interestingly, some of the the women, very young women, right? So um, not even that. I mean, my daughter is a teenager, and they were not even that uh, much older than her. Mm-hmm. Thought that uh, that for them it would be absolutely be unacceptable to be to be taller than um, the man in in the case that they were heterosexual. Um, right. Uh, um, but of course, I mean, there would be less of a tendency than there used to be. But you still see it. You still see some some of it. Was now when I talk to my daughter, who is a teenager and at the high school age, and her friends, um, they they don't uh, they they don't really typically they uh, they don't consider that uh, as much at all. Mm-hmm. So you can definitely see a transition in going. So this is just with respect to the relative height of the two people in a heterosexual couple. <laughs> um, then, of course, there's the whole uh, thing that that is definitely new with the with the last two generations that mm-hmm. uh, they do not take for granted. Um, it's certainly not my daughter's generation. Do not take for granted that uh, that that they're that you're a woman or you're a man, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They they, um, they 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 realize that often often people are either a woman or a man, but there's much more. A, an assumption that other people might not be, so so you can have uh, non-binaries uh, who do not believe in sort mm-hmm. of the binary uh, right division of uh, genders into men and women and, and a lot of other um, notions, and they don't. But but even if people still identify fully as women or fully as men, and they were assigned that gender at birth and so on, uh, they don't they don't for the most part in that generation assume that about mm-hmm. other people or not not to the same extent as we used to or as I used to and probably still right. do. Right. Your book talks a lot about recovery from bad relationships as well as how to get out of one. My question is, at what point does the energy of love flips to hate? I think I think it might, uh, it's a very complicated issue and um, I'm... I'm actually currently uh, started a new project uh, which mm-hmm. is about hate, mm-hmm. uh, and and there's certainly um, there's a couple of different points where you have you can have have sort of the compulsive, say, extreme hate, or you can sort of visceral hate, um, and you can have uh, a kind of hate that that sort of is milder and can fluctuate, and I think that uh, love and hate. Those are compatible in and to coexist in in many even even well functioning relationships, mm-hmm. and I think it has to do with that. There's, I mean, you 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 are uh, you know a person typically in a in a well functioning relationship anyway. You know the other person uh, better than uh, in most cases better than you know anyone else. And they mm-hmm. know you better than uh, anyone else knows you, and and uh, so so you know which you know how to um, you can really hurt the other person um, if if you're not careful because you know so much about them, but also mm-hmm. you yourself are very vulnerable. You you are vulnerable because they know so much about you, 
and and that can that can lead to um, to to hate. In fact, so mm-hmm. in a well functioning uh, relationship, it wouldn't be be uh, most I mean, mostly be a love, loving feelings, but then occasionally there's a feeling of hate. Uh, and so, of course, also anger. You might be angry about something. Hate is a little bit different because hate is also hate can be, for instance. I mean, you can you can hate someone because you're en- uh, you you have en- envy, right? If you envy mm-hmm. for them, for example, they they or if they get something a little too easily, you know, they got a big jump up in a promotion or a big jump in career that they didn't deserve compared to you. You 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 might hate them, even though it's not their fault. And so you might um, you might hate your your partner or spouse in a relationship uh, because th- you. You are. They. They are the reason you've become vulnerable. You are mm-hmm. to some extent mm-hmm. dependent on them, and that can lead to hate, which is different from anger. Where anger typically is directed at something that a person did wrong. Hate, of course, can start out that way as well. But um, but hate is more person directed. Whereas anger is more, you did that or that event happened uh, directed. And and then you know, of course you have hate when 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 uh, when you're vulnerable. And you're really left that way, for example, mm-hmm. if you're broken up with, right, and you didn't want to be broken up with, um, then you really, then that's realized, right? So that fear you had, uh, that you were so vulnerable and that another person knew you so well and you had become kind of dependent in some sense uh, and and suddenly the other person uh, leaves and, you are, you, and if that was not what you wanted, that can lead, that can flip. To, to hate, um, and, and that's uh, a very typical reaction. You are listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is Dr. Barrett Brogard. She is a professor of philosophy with joint appointments in the Departments of Philosophy and Psychology at the University of Miami, as well as the Network for Sensory Research at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogart and I are having a conversation about her life's journey and her latest book on romantic love, simple truths about a complex emotion. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Dr. Bogart, how does love evolve into an obsession? So uh, it can become an obsession um, when uh, the beginning, so the the typical uh, beginning stages of a relationship, uh, those are when, when, when you're obsessed at the beginning stages, it may be that uh, both people, the two people, are, um, are are obsessed with each other. And what fuels that is actually a little bit part of the insecurity that you have, uh, even if it's not something you think about, but there's a certain level of insecurity at the beginning of uh, the relationship. Uh, and and then there's also a tendency, this relates back to when we talked about beliefs, so there's a tendency uh, to idealize the other person um, at the beginning of the relationship. So we, this is very well known that we overlook mm-hmm. flaws. In fact, the very things that we find endearing at the beginning of a relationship might be the things that annoy us later on uh, about the other person. So so the obsession in, at the beginning of the relationship stems from uh, that chemical profile that I talked about that you will have more of the drive or sort of motivational 
uh, and, and, and addiction chemical dopamine, mm-hmm. and you have lower levels of serotonin. So that was what I call sort of I feel I feel comfortable. So you're feeling less comfortable in some sense, and you might be obsessed. And then the other time when you might be obsessed is. Um, is when you feel the other person pull away. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. the full, uh, full-blown breakup. It can just be so. So, in in healthy relationships, it sort of goes a little bit in um, in waves. So one person might be more in love with the other person, but then the next month, uh, you might flip around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are also those relationships where it sort of slowly goes in one direction. And the person um, we're geared that way. If one person runs, uh, we're going to run after them. Um, some people are better at resisting that, and, uh, and the running might be slow walking and so on. But but right. um, the obsession can can uh, grow out of having been used to a certain kind of uh, attention from the other person, and then if the attention suddenly. Um, goes away or, or diminishes, we might sort of want to have it again, and that can lead to obsession. And then obsession um, then is also in all of the cases where the other person simply is not romantically interested. So that could be after right. a relationship has already happened and the other person has broken up, or it could be before a relationship ever happens and we're obsessed because, or not because, but as a, as a part of that the other person uh, does not want us or does, uh, is not romantically interested in us. That's very interesting. So that brings me to the next question. Can casual sex lead to love? There's no guarantee, but there, is, um, there, are, there are some... When I mentioned the chemicals earlier, I mentioned uh, the mm-hmm. two chemicals that fluctuate um, most. But... Um, there's another one that is also uh, talked about, the oxytocin, which is a, a chemical that leads us to trust other people. It's a, also a chemical that's associated with sex um, and that we produce more of uh, in, in relation to sex. It's, um, it, it, uh, it's also it's, it's more um, abundant in a little more progressive relationships so usually when you get a little further along in a relationship but certainly if you have casual sex with a person over time um, you that could um, that could certainly lead to 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 love um, mm-hmm. again believe believe plays a, a, a sometimes a greater role than chemicals so if it had mm-hmm. just been chemicals then maybe it would always lead to love at least if you if you didn't have uh, certainly uh, other opportunities come along or something. Um, but but we also grew up with certain beliefs, and depending on our our beliefs, we might have beliefs that we don't even we're not even aware of that that maybe associate casual sex with the opposite of love. So that can stand mm-hmm. in the way, for example, of of love, right? So so we might have grown up with the the idea that. Uh, the person that I'm eventually going to settle down with is someone I um, I go on a lot of lots of dates with, and and uh, doesn't have to be waiting all the way until marriage, but wait for a long time, and then um, what, when we really love each other, we'll then have sex for the first time. And and if you have that belief, you might not even be aware of it. Um, mm-hmm. but that will probably uh, be an obstacle to the casual sex turning into love. 
But if if you don't have that and you're more driven by the chemicals, then maybe a one-time sort of uh, a one-night stand might not do it. But if you had that sort of thing <laughs> for, for a, number, a number of times with the same person, that, that might actually yeah. produce these chemicals that might make you fall in love. Then it becomes a sustaining situation. That brings me to tell us about unconscious love. Unconscious love, um, so the, the perhaps less interesting kind is the one that we uh, always experience, less so at the beginning of a relationship, but certainly at later stages uh, if you're in a relationship because if you, I mean, how would you go about your day if you had to go think about the other person and feel in love with the other person all day long, right? If you don't, mm-hmm. and, and when you don't, then your love is not thereby gone. So that's a form the less interesting form of unconscious love. Uh, the the more surprising form of unconscious love is that you may actually be, in some cases, in love with a person, um, but be in a kind of, uh, perhaps this is a kind of denial, um, mm-hmm. or just failure, failure of realization. So you may actually be um, in love, romantically interested, or in love with a person, uh, but you would absolutely deny it and sincerely deny it, not <laughs> deny it just to people you wouldn't want to, to um, tell it to. But you would sincerely deny that you, you're in love. And you might even say, like, no, we're good, we're good friends or we, no, we're yeah. just colleagues. We work together or, um, right. no, no, I just, uh, he, he just serves me my coffee uh, every morning um, mm-hmm. at, the, at, the, at the local coffee shop. Um mm-hmm. But then you might have this feeling of love. And and there's also, of course, research uh, that has shown that if you're unsure, if you have no sort of preponderance of evidence that uh, that the other person said in you, if it, if it could, if, if it actually it seems like the other person is friendly but probably not interested in you romantically, then mm-hmm. the brain has, a tendency to protect yourself from um, mm-hmm. yourself, so to speak. And so you probably would be less likely to realize it, that you're in love. So sometimes when you first realize that you're uh, in love with someone maybe you have known for a long time, maybe mm-hmm. when they give you a signal that they're interested in you, um, and that may be when you suddenly realize, oh, wait a minute, actually, I, I do have some romantic feelings for that person. Interesting. Is it possible to love more than one person? So, uh, so that yes, yeah, it is, uh, and um, it's it's possible to love more than one person romantically. Importantly, mm-hmm. because um, uh, otherwise, probably no one would uh, to agree that you can love your friend and and your partner and your child. Um, but romantically, yes, and and that's because and that's where it goes a little bit against how we normally think of love. And how we talk about love, and it has a little bit to do, perhaps also with the degrees of love. That there's not a maximum degree of love. Um, is there a minimum degree of love? Yes, there is, because mm-hmm. you cannot love a person, but but there's not a maximum <laughs> degree of love. And so um, uh, there, there's also the possibility that you you actually might love more than one person, and that of course leaves it open for for people to to act on that and form relationships with more than one person, which is uh, especially the younger generations are uh, uh, more open to, to those kind of 
polyamorous uh, relationships. Mm-hmm. But uh, that uh, this is my my theory is that they are not more widespread than they are because they are very complicated. Right. Um, they are not they are not as simple as uh, oh we're three people and we all love each other or or it doesn't have to be all three people. It could be five people and two of them love each other and the other two love mm-hmm. two of the other ones and so on. Um, but of course they're complicated because we have other emotions like jealousy that would be hard to overcome. And then there's this, uh, how time consuming it could be to, to <laughs> maintain a relationship with more than one person. Uh, so, so, you know, many people find it time consuming enough to just have, a relationship with one person. So, but we can certainly love more than one person. Uh, mm-hmm. We it does not always work if we try to act on it. Um, and right. Sometimes um, it it yeah. Of course, that can lead also to uh, cases of infidelity and cheating, where mm-hmm. um, where there really is love, both for the one the person that is being cheated on and the person mm-hmm. um, that you're cheating with. So. So that would be another example where it's not as clear cut as, oh, I just grew tired of the old one, but I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I don't want to break it off because now we have a house together or something like that. What's the line that divide love and lust? So lust uh, is is a physical attraction that clearly you can also have when you are in love or when you love a person. But it's a physical attraction. Um, and uh, you can be, um, it can be initiated, um, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, even without another person uh, being present. And it, 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 it's, it's a, there's a big overlap, of course, in some areas of the brain between uh, lust and love. But one thing that you don't need to have, though it can be hard to distinguish, is mm-hmm. care. So, the problem is that you can also have lust and friendship, right? Um, mm-hmm. But now we're starting to get into a very, very gray uh, sort of area between is it love or is it friendship? If you both have, if you both care, right? So I'm not talking about uh, mm-hmm. the really casual friends with benefits because you can have those without caring that very much right. about the other person. But if you're really, really good friends with a person and you also felt lust towards them, then perhaps it's difficult uh, to say whether we should classify that as love or friendship mm-hmm. plus lust, mm-hmm. right? So, so definitely there's this sense of really caring um, about mm-hmm. the other person. You don't have that necessarily at the beginning of the relationship because you might care. Well, you might care about them in a, in a different sense um, right? because you have this, uh, you know, the, you, you idealize them in some sense. So, so you might have more maybe... Um, admira- uh, admiration, but admiration for something that they might not even be. Um, so, right. but over over time, you have a certain kind of care, and and so you have um, uh, other relations that are not related to to lust. I mean, you can sure. have things like empathy, sympathy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you you um, you also feel like that you get something personally, if not physically, out of spending time with the other person, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that you get that maybe also from a friendship, but you also can have that in love where they're spending time together doing something that is not at all Mm -hmm. lust-related. 
is sort of maybe also again bordering the same feelings that you could have in a friendship. Um, but uh, some of those other, so that's why I called it a complex emotion because it's composed of all these other emotions, right? It's not just one thing. And if all the lust disappears, um, then I would no longer classify it as romantic love. love. Um, And again, I have to be careful because my daughter would immediately come in with an objection now and say, wait, wait a minute. So now you're saying that uh, that, that, uh, people who classify as asexuals, which is a category, um, mm-hmm. They they uh, they cannot be in love and uh, and and then I have to um, I have to admit that yes they can and modify my argument a little bit but but sort of as a general picture I would say if you're not asexual and all the lust appears I would not call it romantic love. Interesting. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading on romantic love? I would see that um, that love can come in uh, in degrees, and that it can um, that it really does change uh, from the beginning stages to the later stages, and that there's such a thing as attachment, and that uh, be realistic about love, that kind of love that you see in the Hollywood uh, Hollywood movies, and then they live forever after, right? Being in love, no, they did not. Um, but I want to see that be realistic about that. It's not gonna be more than the beginning stages of relationships where you have that obsessive, uh, overwhelming, all-consuming love. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gonna be a little bit different uh, later on, and it's gonna uh, come in degrees. Uh, sometimes you're not gonna feel it, um, and so that, that's that's the main uh, lesson of the book. Where can someone go to buy the book and get more information about you and keep up with your latest happenings? It's available um, in, um, in uh, on Amazon. Is is the one place is available. It's, it's it's published with Oxford University Press, so they also have it. Where you can order it there. Um, they, they, it's in depending on which where you're located and which bookstores you have around. It might be there and. Um, and uh, yeah, I have, um, um, if you want to read a bit about some of the material of the book before um, committing to the book, uh, you, I have a blog on Psychology Today that's called The Mysteries of Love, and I discuss issues that are related to, to the content of the book there. And so that's, that's, um, that's online content, so that's, that's sort of free of charge. Uh, so that's Psychology Today, The Mysteries of Love. Wonderful. What is next for you? So uh, so I've just started thinking about hate a little more uh, (laughs) and how it relates to, but also how it relates to, how how it's so different from anger. Uh, So that's one thing. I also actually uh, am thinking about another book on on love uh, that would focus a little more on how how much culture really does influence love um, Mm -hmm. because, of course, it has an evolutionary component. But I wanna I wanna look much more at how much we are we are how much we're in control of love how uh, hard or how easy it is to make mm-hmm. yourself fall out of love or fall in love mm-hmm. or um, or fall back in love with if you're in a relationship where that would be um, a thing you would want to do so so that's some uh, topics that I discussed in unromantic love, but I, I would like to look um, at that in, in a sort of follow-up book where I look more close, closely at those things because if you have more of a cultural input, maybe you also have more of a 
personal um, personal control over um, the kind, I mean, who you love or whether you love a person when it's not healthy to love that person and so on. Wonderful. As we close the show, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Yeah, so a, a recipe for, for living um, is is um, very much in both something that is, is new today with the whole mindfulness approach, but also is old because it's uh, part of the whole tradition that was called existentialism, um, but where the mindfulness people today, uh, they talk about being um, being present with the the existentialists who obsessed with um, you ought to be present, but now we have all this anxiety about that we have to die and so on. But here's my, my little uh, twist on that. Um, it, it's not just live in the present, because many people don't know what that means. It's uh, sort of like what you would do with children. Maybe I even learned it from being a mother. Um, you, you have to pick your battles, but you also have to pick, pick your battles with yourself. So you that you might get extremely upset about something that really it doesn't matter in the long run. You might be extremely upset about something you, you did, or you might be extremely upset about something that some other person did. Um, so there are things that can completely consume you that when in a month or two, it really didn't matter. And so, um, so my way of thinking of living in the present is more like, um, well, pick your battles, not just with others, but with yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, find out mm-hmm. which which are the things that, where, I mean, what is there something where, no, this is really something I want to change. You know, if you, if you um, lost your job and you need a new job, maybe that is something you do need. I mean, that's a battle, and maybe that's something you need to work on. But then maybe sometimes you have to forgive yourself for some things that you can't change anyway from the past. So that's sort of my, my twist on the existentialism uh, mindfulness movement that I would say mm-hmm. sort of is at least a recipe, a recipe for for being more satisfied in life uh, and ha- happy um, in life. Wonderful, Dr. Borgard. Thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on from my mama's kitchen talk radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, March 27. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor in chief for Chicken Soup for the Soul. Amy and I will be having a conversation about their latest release, Chicken Soup for the Soul, My Amazing Mom, a collection of 101 stories of love and appreciation honoring mothers all around the world for their unconditional love. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Dr. Bogart, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. until Fast and Furious Supercharged. I never thought coming face-to-face with a hungry T-Rex would make my dad scream so loud. 
and I have never felt more scared or alive. If you haven't been to Universal Studios Hollywood lately, come see what you've been missing. Plan your visit online and save at UniversalStudiosHollywood.com. Restrictions apply. What a matchup! And what a team, Mike! Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to Metro PCS and an unlimited LTE plan and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. Metro PCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions.